So this is the fifth Sunday of five weeks of talking about our mission and vision. So let's quickly review the last few weeks, and then we'll go right into this morning. And by the way, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, at some point you'll want to get to Acts chapter 13, because that's where we're at this morning. So our mission is to love God, love others, and make disciples. And we believe that in the next five years, God is positioning our church. We're we're, we're here for such a time as this to do four things. To engage the emerging generation by creating welcoming and captivating ministry environments and opportunities for kids and the adults in their lives. So that 250 new families would come and experience salvation in Jesus Christ and continue their spiritual journey at Community Heights. We believe our vision for our church is also that we're going to mobilize our church to love our community, to love Newton by serving 25,000 hours over the next five years, helping to meet the practical needs of people in our community. And the third week, uh, we talked about becoming a healing place. We want to become a healing place by helping people achieve freedom from their hurts and addictions while providing families coaching and essential resources for spiritual health. Now we get to this morning. Those are the first three. Here's the fourth one. We're going to do these four things for the next five years. We're going to expand our reach. We're going to expand the reach of our church. Right now, the reach is, you know, in this room and and beyond. The reach is in our community Truly, the reaches around the world as we give to the Great Commission Fund, which is our denomination's missions fund that supports uh, over 700 missionaries all around the world. But we're going to train and send five full-time missionaries in the next five years. you think we can do that? Could we train and send? Could we take from some of our own, maybe some that are in high school today or in college today, maybe some that are looking toward retirement today, some of you, who will actually leave Newton and take your, your post-career years somewhere else to serve in a different place, that's, that's our goal is to send, if we send more, that'd be great. But the goal is to send five, five full-time missionaries to serve somewhere around the world. And then to mobilize a hundred of our adults and students annually on a mission experience. How many of you have ever been on a missions trip since you were a kid all the way on up? How many? How many? Raise your hand. Okay, a good number, a good number. So now, how many of you have never really been on a church-sponsored missions trip before? How many? Raise your hand. Okay, a good number. Now, not all of you raised your hands. I can tell from up here, not all of you have. So, so we still have people who have yet to go on their first trip. And the, the greatest thing I ever did as a youth pastor was take students on missions trips. There, there's a girl, her, um, her and her husband are now leaders in the church that I was at in New York where I was the youth pastor for 10 years, and they are now youth sponsors and youth workers at that church. They've got kids who are now in the youth group, and I think their oldest is graduating out already. But I remember Sarah, when she was, uh, when she was in seventh grade when I got to the church, Sarah was upset, and she told her Sunday school teacher to shut up. Well, I was called into it being a new youth pastor, and the kids didn't really know me, and I remember meeting Sarah in the hallway, and I said, Sarah, you cannot tell your Sunday school teacher to shut up. You can't tell Mrs. McCoy to shut up. 
She folded her arms, gritted her teeth, and looked at me and didn't speak to me for a year. A whole year. So then a couple years later, you know, the, the, the relationship thawed just a little bit, and I took her on a missions trip. We went to Pennsylvania, and we got about 10 other kids, and we kind of got to know each other. Then we went to Montreal and, and Ottawa and uh, uh, Niagara Falls, and she kind of got to know me a little better. And then we went from New York. We flew down to Newark. We went from Newark to Seattle. We went north, and we worked with Native people. And we did that for 10 years in a row. And, and I actually, once I moved to Iowa, we continued that for a couple years and was still with that group from New York and a group from Florida. We'd meet out in Seattle and go north into British Columbia. Her life changed because of going on missions trips. So if we could get our students and some of us older people out on missions trips, it will change our life, it will change the perspective of our perspective on the world. And then thirdly, we're going to partner with our district churches to plant at least three new churches within our district. So now we're, we're an alliance church, right? The Christian and Missionary Alliance. We're, we're a denomination that's on mission, right? We want to go out. We want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're, we're going to do. Our part, right, locally is within our district, we're going to find other churches that are planting churches. I don't know, maybe we'll plant a church. I don't know. But we're at least going to partner with other district churches to help churches get planted within our district because we need Alliance churches in Des Moines. We need Alliance churches in Kansas City. We need Alliance churches throughout Missouri and Kansas. There, there are actually people that live in Kansas. They're like their mailing address is Kansas. That joke didn't go over, did it? So... So I'm from New York. I didn't think anybody was actually from Kansas. But there are people. There are lost people. And Alliance churches need to be planted in all of these cities and towns where they've got, you know, 5,000, 10,000 or more people. And there are some of those cities in Kansas, as well as Missouri, as well as Nebraska, as well as Colorado and Iowa. Those five states comprise our district. And right now there's only about 60 Alliance churches within those five states. So we've got a lot of room to grow and to expand. So that is the fourth part of our mission, to, 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 to uh, train five, to mobilize 100 every year, and then to plant three. If we could do that over the next five years, we are going to make an impact for the kingdom of God, right? We're going to make an impact. Now, I have some friends who uh, adopted a little girl, and this little girl was adopted about three years ago. seems like I'm always talking about adoption. I guess it's going on a lot in my life these days. Um, they adopted this little girl knowing that she had Down syndrome. And so they, they adopted her uh, south of here. They brought her home, and they've had her for three years now. Uh, you're looking at uh, Eliza, and that's her mom. And her mom wrote this the other day, and I thought, this is... This connects with what we're talking about, about being a church and a people on mission. She wrote, Parenting Eliza is a journey of loving deeper and allowing myself to grow into receiving love too. Her mom, uh, Kayla, wrote, I watched Won't You Be My Neighbor and can't stop thinking of an old clip of Mr. Rogers singing with a little boy in a wheelchair who had significant special needs. It's beautiful not only to read the lyrics on behalf of my little girl with an extra chromosome, but also let them fall in the corners of my heart too. 
And the lyrics that Mr. Rogers sang to this little boy in a wheelchair, and I'm not going to sing, although I could probably sing as good as Mr. Rogers, for those of you who remember Mr. Rogers. It's you I like, the way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your fancy chair beside you. It's you I like, the way you are right now. It's you I like, every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself. It's you. It's you I like. Kayla writes, what a deep joy it is to like, to love without agenda, without qualifiers, without strings. I don't love Eliza for what she can, can or can't do. I love her right now just the way she is. That part's easy. But what's mind-blowing to me is that I could also be worthy of a no-qualifier type of love. She's pointing me to that. If, if a, a pastor's wife has a hard time understanding a God who loves without qualification, who looks at us with our extra this and too few that and an imperfect self and can love us, the people in our community without Jesus, they have a hard time believing that there's a God who loves them. And historically in our nation, Christians haven't always done a good job of helping lost people believe that there's a God who actually loves them. That we've done a good job helping lost people understand that there's a God who is set against them. But what about a God who loves without condition, without performance or behavior, but who loves unqualifyingly? And what if our church could be known in our community as, hey, that's the church that likes us. They, they sing to us, it's you I like. You know, we, we have a lot of thoughts about Newton, right? Especially over the last 10 to 15 years. Now, I've heard them. I don't so much have them as you've experienced them. But to actually take that and redemptively say, God has brought us as a community through what we've come through so that we can be here right now at this time, in this day, and, and, and hear from God and allow God's people to love a community that's still just a little broken and still just a little hurting. And like so many other communities across the country, experiencing that brokenness and, and addiction and hurt and pain and separation and families broken apart. And a lot of young kids who are broken and hurting due to no fault of their own but it's because of those who come before them. And God brings along a group of people and groups of people redemptively to rescue and to save. So we're on a church and in a part of a denomination, praise God, that's on mission, that doesn't want to be an institution. And we don't want to be an institution. We want to be on mission as well. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. This is a phenomenal passage where Paul and Barnabas set out on what is arguably the first missionary journey of the early church. Now, there were other things where the church went out. But here in Acts chapter 13, the chapter begins with uh, Barnabas and Saul, who would, be, who would be Paul, being set apart by the Holy Spirit to go out and do the work to which he is calling them. And they end up going from 
Uh, if you would know where Aleppo, Syria, is today, that's about the area where they were, Antioch, in that day. And the church had, because of persecution, had migrated, the scattering. They had, they had gone north. They'd gone in a couple directions, but this church was north in Antioch, and there were, there were prophets and there were teachers in this church. And the Holy Spirit decided, okay, they've been gathered here for a while. Now it's time for them to go. It's time for me to take some and go somewhere else to take the seeds. So we've got the field and we've been planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting. Now we've got to take some of these seeds and we've got to go somewhere else and plant somewhere else. That was the desire that the founder of the Alliance had, A.B. Simpson, in the late 1800s when he was in New York City and he began leading immigrants to Jesus and began seeing that that they had to go out on mission. They had to go overseas. They had to go around the world. And he had two organizations going on at the same time. And those organizations finally came together. One was a Christian organization. One was a missionary society. And the Christian and Missionary Alliance was born. And it started back here, not the alliance, but this, this mission, this mission of God for the church kind of starts here in Acts chapter 13. And so they go out from Aleppo, and they just go southwest to the shore, right to the coast of the Mediterranean. They get on a boat, and they sail to Cyprus, the island right there just east of Israel. And they go onto this island, and they go around the island, and uh, they're, they're preaching the good news. They're taking this message about Jesus. And they get to the other side, they get to this little city, and we pick it up in verse 14 of Acts chapter 13. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So you've got to be looking yourself, it's not on the screen. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So here they are among the Jews that were on this island in the Mediterranean. There was a, there was a Jewish population there, and they're going to tell them, hey, you Jews, you've got a Messiah. So here's what they say. They're given an opportunity to speak. In verse 16, standing up, Paul mentioned, motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made, and he goes on this little history, he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He's fast-forwarding. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul. That's how I like to read that, because that's pretty much how it happened. Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. If you know anything about Saul, wasn't a very good king. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He's there in a foreign place, but he's with people of like kinship, the Jewish uh, heritage there. They were Israelites. And so now he's naming David, David, the great king David. He's, uh, he's fist-bumping them in, in solidarity. You remember David. Oh, yeah, we remember David. We know David. Yeah, David was the man. He was the dude. He was the guy through whom the Savior would come. Everybody knows the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. So he keeps going. Verse 23. 
from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. So here's the declaration of Paul to these people. The Savior has come. From David, God has brought this Savior as he promised. The promise of God has been fulfilled. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. We see this this scripture in the Gospels, right? And Paul is repeating it here. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. This message of salvation that God sent here in the person of Jesus Christ that became a message and ministry of reconciliation was given to the church. We've got it. We're it. We have it. We have to take it. We have to take it and say to people, hey, you and me, it's to us that the Savior's been sent. That's why we have to be a church on mission. Verse 27, it says, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He's declaring to these people, this guy was dead, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob raised him from the dead. He's the real deal. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And here's what he says in verse 32. So important. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled. You go out today and you go down to Walmart and you walk the aisles and you walk up to somebody and say, hey, what was it that God promised way, way back? Way back even before the Bible was written. Way back to the beginning, what, what did God promise early peoples of the earth? They're going to look at you with a blank stare. They're going to say, what? You know, if I walked it up to you in Walmart, you might look at me with a blank stare, right? What did God, what did God promise? God promised salvation. God promised hope. God promised that life would come from death. God promised that death wouldn't be the end. And here Paul and Barnabas Early, early days, 50s, probably 50s A.D., 60s A.D., early days. They get on a boat. They go to Cyprus. They go to the southwest part of Cyprus. They hit this town. They go into the synagogue, and they're preaching this gospel. Fast forward 2,000 years. We're still preaching it. It's the same gospel. It's the same good news. It's the same only good news that will save people. So on Wednesday nights, there's kids running around here, and they get at some point, and teenagers, at some point, they get in these little groups, and what happens? 
the group leaders are talking to them about what they've been learning with the view of taking them to the point where they understand that they need to believe in Jesus, the God who loves them, the God who saves. That's why we're here. We're not here just to hold like kids' programs. We're not here just to, to, just to have like a, a club meetings, you know, and, and, and enjoy our club member benefits because we're part of the club. No, we're here for others. We're here to come in, to gather together, to grow together, and then to reach out and bring others in. What if the church, I love this question, what if the church were the missionary in the community? We think about churches and pastors and church members, and then we think about missionaries. But what if the church was the missionary in the community? That's what it means to be on mission. To not see yourself as a member of a club, but to see ourselves as a missionary, as somebody on mission. See, missionary isn't some little, little goody two-shoes. A missionary is somebody on mission. They actually have a mission to accomplish. They're not just like driving around to drive around, but they're going somewhere. And our church has to be going somewhere. We have to be reaching out and, and seeing the types of things we talked about happen because they all, they all uh, the, the pond that that little stream ends in is all about transformation. It's all about life transformation through salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, scooching down in Acts 13 to verse 36, a couple more verses here. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, notice he's going back to David again. When he served his purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. Okay, so you think David was a great guy, right? You think David was like the man in Jewish history. You think he was the, the greatest king of Israel. But he died, and he was buried, and his body decayed. If you go and dig him up today, there may be some bones, but that's it. Maybe some bones. And this is back then. Today, I don't know. He said, David died. You think David is great? Now, I'm going to tell you about somebody greater than David. He says, his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. His body didn't decay. He's the one. He's the first one to see new life. He's the first one to defeat death. And his life and his defeat of death tells us that we also can defeat death. There's a guy who was a pastor of a large church out in California, wrote a bunch of music and, and cut a bunch of albums with his worship team. I, I'd gone to a couple conferences there, and I remember it was 1998, and I was outside of the church building, and they had, uh, they had big tents. It's in Southern California in the nice weather. And they had these resource tents, and they had, they, they had just cut this new CD. And this guy's name is Rick. He was a worship pastor there. And I remember talking to him. And he was telling me, oh, this, um, this new CD, uh, it's called Healing Grace. And we're so excited about it. I'm so excited about the ministry that it's going to have in the lives of people and what God can do and how God can use that. And I remember at the time, I, I was thrilled with Rick. I, I, I love the guy. I didn't quite get what he was saying. You know, it's just a CD, right? It's just a CD with some songs. But I bought that CD, and I've listened to it over the years. And he poured through every word 
of every song. They were all written by, mostly by him, but some others in his church. And the CD had a message to it. It had a message. So just the other day, I read on social media where uh, Rick's, uh, he's got a brain cancer. And he said, bad news, this tumor, this tumor is growing. And he said, when I heard the news from my doctor, um, I, I got really cold and I started to shiver. I started to shake when the doctor, because he's already gone through surgery, they've already taken out, he's gone through radiation and all that. And it doesn't look good, right? He's, probably, he's just probably not going to make it real long. So he's making every day count. And uh, he's just in his, I think, early 60s. Uh, got a family, he's got grandkids coming along, kids getting, get, kids getting married. And he said, you know, after I stopped shaking and after my wife and I went and got a much-needed meal and we began to talk through, I began to pray through it and process through it through faith. And essentially what he said is he understands that, you know what, it's okay if we don't survive this life. Nobody's survived it yet because there's a life to come that's a greater life than this. There's greater life than this. And that's the hope that people need. So when, when Paul writes here, or, or when uh, uh, Luke writes, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. That freedom from sin allows people to have uh, a non-decay existence, a life that we go from this particular life into eternal life to come that's going to be different, that would take a long time to talk about and pour through the Scriptures about, but there is a life to come. And Rick was essentially saying, you know what? I don't have to survive this life. I mean, he's going through it today. This was, I think, yesterday. I think this was yesterday that this happened. But he, he doesn't have to survive this life. The guy who has led you know, tens of thousands in worship over the years he ain't doing it anymore. His right hand doesn't even work. He can't strum a guitar anymore. But now he's, now he's, looking, for, he's looking for the outcome of his faith because it's, it's just over there. It's just, he can almost see it. He can almost see it. So that was his news this week. And this news that the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay, this is the news that we have to give to people. And, and that... Um, through Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins, and through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Wouldn't you like to be set free from every sin? What does that mean? Like, did you sin this week? Uh, yeah, I did. Does that sin hold us? Are we in bondage to that sin? No. No. See, we had the 20th century was such a behavioralist performance Christianity in so many corners of Christianity. It's hard for us to wrap our head around the fact that we can sin, but we're still set free from it. It has no teeth. It has no teeth because Jesus defeated sin and death. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Sin has no teeth in your life. Is it good? No, it's not good. Should we continue in it? Because, you know, we'll, no, no, no. But, sin, but don't let it control you. Declare your freedom from it. Because those who believe in Jesus Christ are set free from every sin. 
And the quicker that we can get that news to people, the quicker we can believe it ourselves and get that news to other people, the better. The quicker we can get it into the life of a young person, they don't have to carry all excess spiritual baggage around with them because they can just know, like from when they were a kid, that Jesus sets me free. Sin has no, no more has dominion over me, which is one of the words the Scriptures use. So let me ask you, do you feel like you're tangled in sin? Do you? You don't have to be tangled in sin. Number one, you're giving it more power than it really has because Jesus has already defeated it. And your faith has already nullified it in your life. So when it comes along, just kick it away. When it comes along and bites at your heels, just you know, shake it off, get it off. When it's, you know, just, just get rid of it. Don't, can I say this? I say this because of the power of the cross. Don't worry about it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't allow sin. It's like the bank coming after you who've paid your homes off. It's like the bank comes after you and says, hey, hey, we want more money. No, 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 no. They send you letters. Hey, you, you owe us, you owe us. We want more money. You ever get a letter from the IRS and they're saying you owe, I mean, you know, you know you don't owe them money. And, and you walk in to talk to your accountant or to your lawyer and you've got all the confidence in the world. You know, you know because you've done the hard work. You know you don't owe them any money and we just got to get this straightened out. That's what sin is like. Sin can't hurt you. You just got to get it straightened out, but, but you don't owe it anything. You don't owe it anything, so let's just sit down and figure this out because you no longer have authority over me. You no longer condemn me. That's the message that people need to hear. That's why I'm so thankful we're in a denomination that's on mission and that we can be a church that's on mission, that we can work, right, to, to send five somewhere, to mobilize 100 every year, and to help plant three more churches. What if we don't help plant three more churches? What if we don't do it? Now, here's what, here's what one strain of Christianity will say. Oh, God's in control. God will just do it without you. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe he uses his people. Maybe he wants to use his people. What if we don't plant three new churches? What if we don't send people out to change communities and other places on the earth? What if we don't take our kids and our adults and send them on mission trips and service opportunities? We miss out on all the blessings. The people that would receive that miss out on all of that. This little girl, Eliza, what I didn't tell you is that she's been in the hospital for four weeks. Eliza's been in the hospital for four weeks. It finally came. This, this sickness came over her and her comp- compromised immune system. It, uh, it, it, it couldn't keep up. And they put her in the hospital. I've been there four or five times to see her and her parents. And uh, she's finally, finally getting better. After, after being on the most advanced respirator they could put her on, 100% oxygen, doing, I mean, the whole, it was pedal to the metal, and she was just barely hanging on. Well, I, I read this yesterday. A thing happened yesterday. They kicked us out of pediatric intensive care. 
I kept asking, are you sure? And they kept answering, yes. Her mom writes, I could have cried as we made our way to the new room, grateful for every gentle nurse and wise doctor and life-saving piece of equipment in the pediatric intensive care unit that quite literally saved my daughter's life. We're settled in her new room on the general floor, and she's already so much stronger than she was yesterday. She's currently on zero oxygen with zero IVs. At one point, not too long ago, she had a machine doing all her breathing for her and more than 20 drips. But today, after some adorable smiles and lots of cuddles, she's happily snoozing on my chest, and I know in a new way what it feels like to hold a miracle. She has to pass a swallow study on Monday, that's tomorrow, so she can eat on her own. She has some physical therapy and occupational therapy to catch up on as she recovers. But we're still working on the pain medication weaning, but breaking out of here is on the horizon. Her three brothers are able to visit finally, and we're all just a thousand times thankful. I don't have any profound words, just an insanely grateful heart. I've been singing this all sons and daughters song to Eliza. Eliza, the little girl who couldn't breathe. Eliza, the girl, the girl who needed the machine to do in a sealed way all the breathing for her. She's been singing this song to her. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Thank you for all the ways so many of you pointed our family to hope in the darkness. You know what? That's where people are at. The people that we would send missionaries to, the people that we would go on a missions trip to, the people whose practical needs we would try and meet in our community, the families who we would invite to come to this room that we fixed up for them, they don't have breath in their lungs. They don't have spiritual breath. It's like spiritual suffocation. They're suffocating because they don't have spiritual breath. And they need somebody to come along and give them a little gospel oxygen. They need hope in their darkness. It's dark. I was in there with this couple, and we were sitting there at Methodist Hospital. And this little girl, I mean, this, I, I wish I could remember the name of the machine. Some of you would know it. It's that one that, that's like 120 respirations a minute. Just like boom, 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 boom. And it's breaking up, supposed to be breaking up stuff. She was on it for five days. They took her off of it. And she immediately crashed. They thought she was ready. Her numbers looked okay. But she immediately crashed. They were in a really dark place. Four weeks this little girl's been in the hospital. And they got three boys at home and trying to carry on with life. People need hope in the darkness. And when people are in their darkest places, people like us need to be there. Just be there. Just be present. Be present and walk with them through it. So let's look at this last, these last two slides. Acts 13, those three verses again. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. God's already provided. He's provided the Savior. What God promised, he has fulfilled by raising up Jesus, 
who defeats death and hell and sin. And sin. People not only get saved or receive salvation, now they've got power to actually live their life. They don't have to be dragged down by the addiction and the sin that's so plagued them and that they've struggled with. And everyone who believes is set free from every sin. This is the purpose of having a vision and being on a mission. You know, those four things, those four vision statements, they could have been other stuff. It just could have been other stuff. Instead of red, it could have been blue, right? Instead of this size, it could have been, it could have been this size. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we join together and we have a place where we're going. And we align ourselves around that and we all get together and we move in that direction and things will get accomplished that would never get accomplished if we had no direction. So the very last slide and the very last verse I want to read to kind of cap this series is Romans chapter 8, verse 14, which says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Nothing happens apart from from the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is God? Nothing happens apart from the work of God. Nothing does. So would you read these two paragraphs with me? Would, could this be, and, and I want to welcome our worship team to come up. Just come on right back up. You can come up to the platform right now. Because I would like us to read this together as a closing prayer to this series. And I want us to depend on and trust on the Holy Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Are you a child of God? If you're not, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the one who died for you, who paid for your sins. Believe in that Savior whom God sent. And if you are a child of God, you can be led by the Spirit of God. And we Here at Community Heights, we as a church family need to be led by the Spirit of God so that we can provide hope for people who are in darkness and so that we can give gospel oxygen to those who are suffocating spiritually and facing certain eternal separation from God. Would you pray this with me and would you read it along with me? God, may we be a church whose sole source of power is the Holy Spirit. Lead us by your Spirit to accomplish your vision for our church in our community, region, and world. Holy Spirit, give us the power to love so that love is the driving force behind all we do because you, God, are love. May the fruit of our ministry be transformed lives. Amen.